Last week I left you with a question. What's center for you? When you think about life, your philosophy of living, when you think about your faith, your religious experience, when you think about where your adoration flows and who your loyalties are to, when you think about your theology, what's center for you? It's a person of Jesus Christ, center for you. He is the love and worship of a true God, center for you. This week I want to frame that just a little bit differently. This week I want to frame that and challenge you as well beyond that. You see, we live in a world of competing stories. We live in a world of a myriad of narratives, if you will. And these narratives are compelling in their own right, depending on our perspective. These stories direct us in some compelling way. And what's interesting is that actually many of us are not only unaware of the stories and the way in which they direct our lives, but we're unaware of the ways in which they compete with one another. You see, it's one thing to say, yes, Jesus is at the heart of my theology. Yes, Jesus Christ is at the center of, of my belief and faith. Yes, a conviction about the oneness and trueness of God and his centrality in my creation and redemption and future is, is where I'm at. It's one thing to say that. And it's another thing to embody it. It's another thing to organize your life around it. And just for fun, let's just see if we can tease out some of the narratives, some of the stories that guide our lives. Let's start with the American story, or I should say the American stories, because they're diverse and different in amongst themselves too. We're familiar with the story of the rugged individualist, right? characterized in Western films and the West in general, an independent type, a person who makes his own way in the world, establishes his own rules. Sound familiar? Rugged individualism. We're talking about uh, those who came from other countries where what we call a Protestant work ethic was part of the picture. And the story was you start out low and you end up high. If you work hard, if you're honest, if you, pull your, you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you can make uh, whatever you want of yourself. It seems that at moments we capture glimpses of that, of that reality, right? I mean, let's just take our current president. His beginnings in life were not particularly auspicious. He's not royalty after all. And yet he's found his way in the highest office in the land. We could look at a number of instances in our culture where people of relatively disadvantaged background have managed to find a way through creativity, through talent, through sheer luck uh, to, to, to work their way to notoriety or fame, to power, influence, 
great gain. The American story is one of prosperity, and it's, of course, increasingly a lie, isn't it? Unless one of you has been hiding your wealth from me, this church, God, everybody else, none of you are in the top 1% of the nation. None of you are in the top 2% for national wealth in the nation, I'm guessing. And that top 2% is now controlling far more assets than the bottom 40% of the nation is controlling. And many of you are closer to the bottom 40% than the top 2%. So this notion that somehow uh, everybody prospers and everybody just keeps in an upward trajectory uh, has been the promise of the past and even the reality at times, but one of the stories that we still adhere to is the story that says, it's the story of the American dream. It's a story of economic prosperity in a land where you work hard, you pay your taxes, and the blessings come. There are stories that center around, narratives that center around the value of particular things or successes. Let's take education, for example. I know a family highly accomplished family, deeply steeped in Adventist tradition. But from what I can see, it would appear that the narrative of their lives that governed, that that their lives is built around, is the story of academic success. Schools have been chosen not because of what they offered spiritually or uh, what they offered in terms of adequacy, in terms of education. They've been chosen because they're superior And because from those ranks, those children have the best chance of getting into the next level of school with the best rank. Have any of you been playing this game? It's an age-old game. I can't remember uh, when it started for us, but it was a few days before a deadline. We were at the YMCA, and a parent was there that we knew, and our son was taking swimming lessons. He was in Fish One class, or whatever they called it, sharks or minnows or something. And um, uh, one of the mothers was talking to us and said, oh, so where's your, your son going to kindergarten next year? Or, and, we, and we said, well, I don't, you know, I don't, we don't know. You don't know? Well, have you applied for magnet school? No. Well, you know the deadline is in two days. No. Now you've got to do that. Okay. Well, we kind of geared up quick and realized that the whole world was racing toward the best possible outcome they could get in terms of schools for their children. You've probably heard me mention some years ago, I don't think I've mentioned it recently, we went to an open house for a school that my secretary at the time worked at, and there were 40 parents lined up for 10 slots in kindergarten, and bear in mind now, this is more than 11 years ago, more than 12, 13 years ago, at that time kindergarten was $11,000 a year. And you had to make donations, and you had to volunteer on top of it, and attend all the fundraisers. The parents who were there with their checkbooks out and ready were convinced that an $11,000 kindergarten education was going to, as much as possible, guarantee the success and future and well-being of their children. Those parents loved those children. Those parents were delighted with their children. Those parents provided in every imaginable way for their parents, but their lives were organized around an educational story 
We've got to get our child into the best so he can get into the best after that and the best after that and the best after that. And when he finally graduates summa cum laude from Stanford Law, he'll get an internship worth $145,000 a year and it's only up from there, baby. That is the story that many of us have come to organize our lives around. Some of us have organized our stories around um, or, or, or have stories, narratives in our culture that, that speak to sports. Some of the culture stories uh, have to do with family, the value of those connections. Many of these are old world stories, families that come from the old world and have deep extended generational connections. And the organizing feature of their lives, the organizing story of their lives may relate to Christianity in some way, but it's family. It's the importance of family. You're sitting there, and I'm guessing you, if you have been engaged at all in what I've been saying, can think of a dozen other stories that I've neglected to mention. Maybe hundreds of stories I've neglected to mention. And it is in this context that the story of a God who chose to embody his love in the person of Jesus Christ and become with us and one of us and to show us the love of the Father, it is in that milieu of stories, that body of stories that the story of Christianity competes. And my question this week is, is it still a compelling story? Because the trend that I see increasingly in our world is for people not to organize their lives around this story. Does that, does that ring for any of you? If this story is compelling, if it's true to us, if it's the center, going back to last week's question, then doesn't it make sense that we would want to embody that story? Doesn't it make sense that in some way we would want that story to be the organizing center of our lives. Let's go to 1 John and just refresh ourselves in the Word because this is where that story gets told in today's readings most clearly. 1 John 4, 7-12. to I'm going to start in verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Now that is not an empty phrase. That is not insignificant. That is an entire gospel in one phrase. God so loved us that he sent his son into the world that we might live through him. Now, it sounds to me, you may hear it differently, that this is a story so important, so compelling, so huge, that the life that we would all want 
whatever our culture or background, whatever our values might be, is going to be most ultimately fulfilled in living in and through him. Just a thought. Something for us to consider. This is love. Not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Our story for the kids this morning was of a young man, and we could argue whether he did this foolishly or wisely, whether uh, he should never have done this, or thank God he did because a life was spared. Could have been two funerals, we all know, or three. But God sent his son into the world as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. There is this model that was spoken of in our children's story of self-sacrificing love. Is that an important story for us? Is the self-sacrificing love of Jesus Christ formative? John suggests it must be. Dear friends, since God so loved us, what ought we ought to do? We ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges Jesus as the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God who loves and whoever lives in God, love, excuse me, lives in God and God in them. Pretty powerful. It sounds like a way of being to me. Grounded in the one who, if we go back to John's gospel, was in the beginning who was with God and was God, who created the world, or whom was the agent by which God created the world. We have Christ. This one we affirmed, or hopefully affirmed last week, is center, present in this entire story. Creation, redemption, and ultimately, consummation. Is this still a compelling story? And if it is, are we organizing our lives around it? Go to the Deuteronomy passage. Deuteronomy 6, our passage starts with something you've heard so many times, and you, I hope you all know the name of. I'm going to say it, not because if you didn't know, it's a bad thing that you didn't know, but let's learn it together. It's called the Shema. And in Israel, it's the affirmation of the one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Say that with me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That is a daily affirmation in the Hebrew faith. Hear, O Israel, Lord your God, the Lord your God is one. The Shema, okay? So in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where we, are to, where we find this, there's another way to organize reality. It's not entirely different from what John introduces. It just predates it a bit. And it's equally worth a look. Deuteronomy 6. 
I'm sorry, I'm still breaking in my new Bible and getting to places is not as easy as it was in my old. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in that land you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all of his decrees and commands that I give you so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. And here's the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Do you remember the story of the young man who comes to Jesus and says, What do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, what are the commandments? And he says, love the Lord your God. He repeats this passage. And, God, and Jesus says, so that's what you should do. And he says, I've done these things since my youth, and still something's missing. And Jesus says, go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. Do you remember that story? It's quoting from this passage. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them to your foreheads. We still see this in Orthodox Judaism or Hasidic Judaism today. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. There's a way of organizing life around this. The command to love God and fear Him is not that much different in Deuteronomy than it is in John. In John, we have the embodiment of God's love, the image of the Father presented to us in Christ, so we have a much clearer picture of what this all means. But in Deuteronomy, we have the command to love and obey God as well, and the word that proceeds from God. Now listen carefully to this. This is a neat little trick. The word that proceeds from God that we find in Deuteronomy, the word of the commandment, is meant to give life. David sings the praise of this. And so the word given in Deuteronomy produces or generates its generative of life so that your days may be long upon the land that the Lord your God gives you. Isn't that what it says? It's not a curse. It's a blessing. And when we get to the New Testament one, when we get to the one in Jesus Christ, the word is now a capital W, it's not the word that God speaks that becomes generative, but it's the word that becomes flesh. Generative in a whole new way, an embodied way. The love of God becomes visible, embodied, acted out, lived through, presented, carried forth, sacrificed in the body and life 
of Jesus Christ. And then he says, echoing Deuteronomy, you've heard it said, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And now John picks up and says, Jesus is the embodiment of God's love. And we know that our lives are organized around Jesus when we live in that love. When we love one another, we know that we're his disciples. When we love the world that he loved, we know that we're his disciples. Do you see the symmetry there? How beautiful that is? And does it matter? Is it compelling? Is there anything about this story that might make us consider putting it in a different place among the many competing stories of our lives? I don't know. I hope so. Let's take a look at Ephesians before we let these thoughts settle into our minds and let the Spirit of God do the Spirit of God's work and convict and move and shape. It is for freedom, the Scripture says, that Christ has set us free. You see, in the end, the command to keep all of God's law was more than we could bear. We found ourselves unable to do that perfectly, to do that well. And Christ did that for us. He set us free, and it says, Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. You know, I'm in the wrong passage, I'm sure. I am. Oh, life is good. And that scripture's good, too. I could have almost made it work. <laughs> almost, not quite. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly beloved children, because that's what we are. If we keep reading in 1 John 4, we find out that we have been declared, it's actually 1 John 3, we've been declared children of God, and that's what we are. And so Paul picks us up and says, follow God's example as dearly loved children and walk in the way of what? Love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. See how that might connect to 1 John 4? God, the embodiment of love in Christ who says that you'll take my name and you'll embody my love for the world around you. You see, you have God who sends his son, who sends his spirit, who declares his body, his followers to be the ones who will love the world for him, who will do his works in the world for him, who will perform his miracles in the world for him who will embody the love of God. Therefore, love one another just as I've loved you. Forgive one another just as I've forgiven you. 
Extend grace to one another just as I've extended grace to you. Live your lives around the story. Eat it, drink it, breathe it in the morning and in the evening and at noontime when you're walking with a friend or talking with your child before bedtime. Can we organize our lives around this story still? I pray we might truly embody it. And now, as we have received, let us bless the Lord and let us give. <laughs>